Book One, Chapter Two of Arachne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kainde. Arachne by George Ebers. Translated by Mary J. Stafford. Chapter Two. In spite of the surrounding gloom, Letzcha recognized the man who left the boat. The greeting he shouted told her that it was Hermann's slave, Pius, a Biamite, whom she had met in the house of some neighbors who were his relatives and had sharply rebuffed when he ventured to accost her more familiarly than was seemly for one in bondage. True, in his childhood this man had lived near Tennis as the son of a free papyrus razor, but when still a lad was sold into slavery in Alexandria with his father, who had been seized for taking part in an insurrection against the last king. In the service of Aurel Lewis, his present master's uncle, who had given him to his nephew, and, as the slave of the impetuous yet anything but cruel sculpture Hermann, he had become accustomed to bondage, but was still far more strongly attached to his Biamite race than to the Greek, to whom, it is true, his master belonged, but who had robbed him and his family of freedom. The man of forty did not lack mother-wit, and as his hard fate rendered him thoughtful, and often led him to use figurative terms of speech, which were by no means intended as jests, he had been called by his first master, bias for the sage of Priene. In the house of Hermann, who associated with the best artists in Alexandria, he had picked up all sorts of knowledge and gladly welcomed instruction. His highest desire was to win esteem, and he often did so. Hermann prized the useful fellow highly. He had no secrets from him, and was sure of his silence and goodwill. Bias had managed to lure many a young beauty in Alexandria in whom the sculpture had seen a desirable model to his studio, even under the most difficult circumstances, but he was vexed to find that his master had cast his eye upon the daughter of one of the most distinguished families among his own people. He knew, too, that the Biamites jealously guarded the honor of their women, and had represented to Hermann what a dangerous game he was playing when he began to offer vows of love to Letzja. So it was an extremely welcome task to be permitted to inform her that she was awaiting his master in vain. In reply to her inquiry whether it was the aristocrat who had just arrived who kept Hermann from her, he admitted that she was right, but added that the gods were above even kings, and his master was obliged to yield to the Alexandrian's will. Letzcha laughed incredulously. He, obey a woman. He certainly would not submit to a man, replied the slave. Artists, you must know, would rather oppose ten of the most powerful men than one weak woman, if she is only beautiful. As for the daughter of Archias, thereby hangs a tale. Archias, interrupted the girl, the rich Alexandrian who owns the great weaving house. The very man. So it is his daughter who is keeping Hermann, and you say he is obliged to serve her. As men serve the deity to the utmost or truth, replied the slave importantly, 
Archias, the father, it is true, imposed upon us the debt which is most tardily paid, and which people, even in this country, call gratitude. We are under obligations to the old man. There is no denying it, and therefore also to his only child. For what? Ledscha indignantly exclaimed, and the dark eyebrows which met above her delicate nose contracted suspiciously. I must know. Must, repeated the slave. That word is a ploughshare which suits only loose soil and mine, now that my master is waiting for me, cannot be tilled even by the sharpest. Another time. But if, meanwhile, you have any message for Hermon— Nothing, she replied defiantly, but Baez, in a tone of the most eager assent, exclaimed, One friendly word, girl. You are the fairest among the daughters of the highest Biamite families, and probably the richest also, and therefore a thousand times too good to yield what adorns you to the Greek— that it may tickle the curiosity of the Alexandrian apes. There are more than enough women in the capital to serve that purpose. Trust the experience of a man not wholly devoid of wisdom, my girl. He will throw you aside like an empty wine-bottle when he has used you for a model. Used? interrupted Letzcha disdainfully, but he repeated with firm decision. Yes, used. What could you learn of life, of art and artists, here in the weaver's nest, in the midst of the waves? I know them. A sculptor needs beautiful women, as a cobbler wants leather, and the charms he seeks in you he does not conceal from his friend, Myrtilus, at least. They are your large almond-shaped eyes and your arms. They make him fairly wild with delight by their curves when, in drawing water, you hold a jug balanced on your head. Your slender arched foot, too, is a welcome morsel to him. The darkness prevented Bias from seeing Ledscha's features, but it was easy to perceive what was passing in her mind as, hoarse with indignation, she gasped, How can I know the object of your accusations? But fie upon the servant who would alienate from his own kind master what his soul desires. Then Bias changed not only his tone of voice but his language, and, deeply offended, poured forth a torrent of wrath in the dialect of his people. If to guard you and my master with you from harm my words had the power to put between you and Hermon the distance which separates yonder rising moon from Tennis, I would make them sound as loud as the lion's roar. Yet perhaps you would not understand them, for you go through life as though you were deaf and blind. Did you ever even ask yourself whether the Greek is not differently constituted from the sons of the Biamite sailors and fishermen, with whom you grew up, and to whom he is an abomination? Yet he is no more like them than poppy-juice is like pure water. He and his companions turn life upside down. There is no more distinction between right and wrong in Alexandria than we here in the dark can make between blue and green. To me, the slave who is already growing old, Hermon, is a kind master— I know without your aid what I owe him, and serve him as loyally as any one. But where he threatens to lead to ruin, the innocent daughter of the race whose blood flows in my veins as well as yours, and in doing so perhaps finally destroy himself too, conscience commands me to raise my voice as loud as a sentinel crane when danger threatens the flock. Beware, girl, I repeat— Keep your beauty, which is now to be degraded, to feast the eyes of gaping Greeks, for the worthiest husband among our people. Though Hermon has vowed I know not what, your love dallying will very soon be over, 
We shall leave Tennis within the next few days. When he has gone, there will be one more deceived Biamite who will call down the curse of the gods upon the head of a Greek. You are not the only one who will execrate the destiny that brought us here. Others have been caught in his net, too. Here? asked Letzja, in a hollow tone, and the slave eagerly answered, Where else? And that you may know the truth, among those who visited Hermon in his studios is your own young sister. Our Taos? That child? exclaimed the girl, stretching her hands toward the slave in horror, as if to ward off some impending disaster. That child who, I think, has grown into a very charming girl, and before her, pretty Gula, the wife of Paseth, who, like your father, is away on his ship. Here, in a note of triumphant confidence, the answer rang from the Biamite's lips. There the slanderer stands revealed. Now you are detected. Now I perceive the meaning of your threat. Because, miserable slave, you cherish the mad hope of beguiling me yourself. You do your utmost to estrange me from your master. Gula, you say, visited Hermon in his studio, and it may be true. But though I have been at home only a short time, Tennis is too full of the praises of the heroic Greek who, at the risk of his own life, rescued a child from Passeth's burning house, for the tale not to reach my ears from ten or a dozen different quarters. Gula is the mother of the little girl whose life was saved by Hermon's bold deed, and perhaps the young mother only knocked at her benefactor's door to thank him, but you, base defamer! I, Bias continued, maintaining his composure with difficulty. I saw Gula secretly glide into our rooms again and again, to permit her child's preserver to imitate in clay what he considered beautiful. To seek your love, as you know, the slave forbade himself, although a man no more loses tender desires with his freedom than the tree which is encircled by a fan ceases to put forth buds and blossoms. Eros chooses the slave's heart also as a target for his arrows, but his aim at yours was better than at mine. Now I know how deeply he wounds, and so, as soon as yonder ship in the harbour bears our visitor away again, I shall see you, Shalit's daughter, Letzja, standing before Hermon's modelling table, and behold him scan your beauty to determine what seems worth copying. The Biamite, panting for breath, had listened to the end. Then, raising her little clenched hand menacingly, she muttered through her set teeth, let him try even to touch my veil with his fingers. If I had not been obliged to go away, this would not have happened to my Taos and luckless Gula. Scarcely, replied Bias calmly, if the chicken runs into the water, the hen cannot save it. For the rest, I grew up as a boy in freedom with the husband of your sister, who summoned you to her aid. His father's brick clean was next to our papyrus plantation. Then we fared like so many others, the great devour the small, the just cause is a lost one, and the gods are like men. My father, who drew the sword against oppression and violence, was robbed of liberty, and your brother-in-law, in payment for his honest courage, met an early death. Is the story which is told of you here true? I heard that soon after the poor fellow's burial, the slaves in the brick clean refused to obey his widow. There were a dozen rebellious brick-moulders, and you— one can forgive you much for it, you, the weak girl. I am not weak, interrupted Letzcha proudly. I could have taught three times twelve of the scoundrels who was master. Now they obey my sister, and yet I wish I had stayed in Tennis. Our Taos, she continued in a more gentle tone, 
is still so young, and our mother died when she was a little child, but I, fool, who should have warned her, left her alone, and if she yielded to her mind's temptations, the fault is mine, wholly mine. During this outburst, the light of the fire which old Tabus had fed with fresh straw and dry rushes fell upon the face of the agitated girl. It revealed her thoughts plainly enough, and pleased with the success of his warning, Bias exclaimed, "'And Letzcha, you too will not grant him that from which you would so gladly have withheld your sister. So I will go and tell my master that you refuse to give him another appointment.' He had confidently expected an assent, and therefore started indignantly at her exclamation. "'I intend to do just the contrary.' Yet she eagerly added, as if in explanation, "'He must give me an account of himself, no matter where, and since it cannot be to-day, to-morrow at latest.' The slave, disappointed and anxious, now tried to make her understand how foolish and hard to accomplish her wish was— but she obstinately insisted upon having her own way. Bias angrily turned his back upon her, and, in the early light of the moon, walked toward the shore, but she hastened after him, seized his arm, and, with imperious firmness, commanded, "'You will stay. I must first know whether Hermann really means to leave Tennis so soon.' "'That was his intention early this morning,' replied the other, releasing himself from her grasp. "'What are we to do here longer?' now that his work is as good as finished. "'But when is he going?' she urged, with increased eagerness. "'Day after to-morrow,' was the reply. "'In five, or perhaps even in six days, just as it suits him. Usually we do not even know to-day what is to be done to-morrow. So long as the Alexandrian remains, he will scarcely leave her, or Myrtilus either. Probably she will take both hunting with her, for— Though a kind, fair-minded woman, she loves the chase, and as both have finished their work, they probably will not be reluctant to go with Daphne. He stepped into the boat as he spoke, but Letzcha again detained him, asking impatiently, "'And the work, as you call it? It was covered with a cloth when I visited the studio, but Hermann himself termed it the statue of a goddess. Yet what it represents! Does it look like my sister Teos, enough like her?' I mean to be recognized. A half-compassionate, half-mocking smile flitted over the Biamite's copper-colored visage, and in a tone of patronizing instruction assumed by the better informed, he began, You are thinking of the face. Why, no, child. What that requires can be found in the countenance of no Biamite, hardly even in yours, the fairest of all. And the goddess's figure? asked Letzcha eagerly. For that he first used as a model the fair-haired Heliodora, whom he summoned from Alexandria, and as the wild cat could endure the loneliness only a fortnight, the sisters Neko and Pagis came together. But Tennis was too quiet for them, too. The rabble can only be contented among those of their own sort in the capital. But the great preliminary work was already finished before we left Alexandria. And Gula, my sister— they were not used for the Demeter, said the slave, smiling. Just think, that slender, scarcely grown creature, Teos, and the matronly patroness of marriage, and Gula. True, her little round face is fresh and not ill-looking, but the model of a goddess requires something more. That can only be obtained in Alexandria. What do not the women there do for the care of the body? 
They learn it in the Aphrodision, as the boys study reading and writing. But you, what do you here know even about colouring the eyelids and the lips, curling the hair and treating the nails on the hands and feet? And the clothes? You let them hang just as you put them on, and my master's work is full of folds and little lines in the robe and the peplos. But I have stayed too long already. Do you really insist upon meeting Hermann again? I will and must see him she eagerly declared. "'Well, then,' he answered harshly, "'but if you cast my warning to the winds, pity will also fly away with it.' "'I do not need it,' the girl retorted in a contemptuous tone. "'Then let fate take its course,' said the slave, shrugging his shoulders regretfully. "'My master shall learn what you wish. I shall remain at home until the market is empty. There are plenty of servants at your farm.' Your messenger shall bring you Hermann's answer. "'I will come myself and wait for it under the acacia,' she cried hastily, and went toward the house, but this time it was Bias who called her back. Ledscha reluctantly fulfilled his wish, but she soon regretted it, for though what he had to say was doubtless kindly meant, it contained a fresh and severe offence. The slave represented to her the possibility that— so long as the daughter of Archias remained his guest, Hermann might rebuff her like a troublesome beggar. Then, as if sure of her cause, she indignantly cut short his words. "'You measure him according to your own standard, and do not know what depends upon it for us. Remind him of the full moon on the coming night, and, though ten Alexandrians detained him, he would escape from them to hear what I bring him.' With these words, Ledscha again turned her back upon him, but Bias, with a low imprecation, pushed the boat from the shore and rowed toward the city. End of chapter 2 Read by Gainde of Bahatrek.com